0: A number of years ago, I uh, was having a conversation with uh, the administrative assistant to Dr. Walbert. That tells you, by the way, how many years ago it was. And, and he was describing his uh, early days as a seminary student. And, and by the way, one of his fellow students was Howie Hendricks. But in those days, the uh, students, some of the students actually lived in trailers on the seminary parking lot and he was telling me the, the story about a, a fellow who uh, was living there in, in one of the trailers with his family and he began to, to tell some of his fellow residents that, that hard times were upon him and that, that he was having it really hard. And, and so the, uh, the other trailer dwellers uh, scrounged around their, their cupboards. And they uh, looked for cans of beans and whatever else they could muster up, and so they came to, to present uh, this fellow with uh, with a box of food that they had collected. And and the fellow said, "Oh, thank you so much. I was afraid I was going to have to cash in my last CD." <laughs> and and the reason I tell that story is because when we come to this text in Luke and it's talking about worry i feel like the guy who has one cd left it, we really do not get the, the the kind of worry that the disciples had i mean they really did have reason to worry you know, we worry about our iras and the stock market and whatever you know but we've got medicare and insurance and we got lots of fallbacks. They didn't. Think about this. Just going through the book of Luke. Luke chapter four, Jesus begins his ministry in the synagogue of Nazareth. He reads from Isaiah and and he says, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. And people said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And Jesus says, well, hold on one minute here. Remember that there were uh, many widows in Israel, but Elijah stayed with a a Gentile widow. And there were many lepers in Israel uh, in those days, but Elisha healed a Gentile leper. And all of a sudden, those happy people in that crowd weren't so happy at all, and they tried to push Jesus over the cliff. (laughs) <laughs> if I was one of the disciples, I would say to myself, this does not bode well. And, and then you come to Luke chapter 5, and you remember that story about the, 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 the guys all out fishing, and Jesus has them cast their net out to the other side, and they get this huge catch of fish. And, and then the disciples left their boats, their nets, And later, Peter will say and remind Jesus, we left it all. (laughs) Can you imagine one of those disciples going home and saying to his wife, "Uh, honey, there's been a little change in plans. I don't have a job anymore. And as a matter of fact, in a way, I'm going to be sort of homeless. I mean, do you realize what Jesus and his disciples traveled around, and especially there in the Garden of Gethsemane? They camped out, and Jesus said in Luke chapter nine, hey, you're gonna be a disciple. The birds have nests, I don't have a home. So here are the disciples now. They've left their jobs, they've left their income, and by the way, some of them were family men. I can't tell you all of them, but I know Peter was, because you don't have a mother-in-law unless you're a family man. So, so here are these disciples with families to support, with concerns for the future, and, and now they're jobless, homeless. And, and, and worse yet, now you get to, to uh, chapter nine, and this chapter nine is just a huge, loaded chapter uh, with all the things that happened. Jesus sends out the 12, you remember? And, and then you have the great confession of Peter, And then Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to be going to Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested and persecuted and die and rise again. (laughs) You know, when Peter says to Jesus in in the Gospels, hey, we're not going to have any of this kind of talk. If I know Peter, he doesn't just say that. He gives Jesus a whack on the shoulder and says, no more of that stuff. We're not going to hear of it. I mean, they had invested their entire future on a guy who says he's going to die. It's not a great investment in his mind. So you have all of these things piling up. And then when you get to chapter 11, Jesus pronounces these woes on Echorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. These are Galilean towns. Now, I'll give you a little side note when you, I I tend to think in in terms of the gospel of John, and and John has Jesus making these little forays into Jerusalem. So John chapter 5, he heals the man at the pool of Bethsaida, and and they're going to get him for defiling the Sabbath. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm only doing what my father does. Now he's made himself equal with God. He's crossed the line. That's John 5. Every time in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he pokes the bear again. And these guys, by the time he gets there the last time, they are just foaming at the mouth to get rid of it. That's not the way it is in Luke. It's not until chapter 19 that Jesus gets to Jerusalem in Luke. And most of the time, he's spending his efforts and preaching in Galilean places. And I always thought that Jesus was most aiming what he said at the Jewish religious leaders. But that's not really true in Luke. Yes, he does. He does focus on the leaders, but here these towns were that had had all this ministry on the part of Jesus and his disciples, and he says to them, you know, woe to you. You're thinking, oh my goodness. Jesus doesn't just take on the the, the leaders, he takes on the masses. And I always thought that everybody was on Jesus' side until Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden something strange happened and they went with the leaders. The fact is, Jesus has been laying it out on these guys too. Because they didn't believe in him. With all the signs that had taken place, all that's a long way of saying, when you get to chapter 12, when Jesus now has publicly taken on the, the scribes and the, and the, I should say the Pharisees in sequence, the Pharisees and the scribes, things are getting really bad. You remember Jesus says to them in the fact, woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. And, and the scribes, they kind of poke Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, you know, we're kind of offended too. It says, oh, by the way, scribes, I've got a word for you. And at the end of chapter 11, it says, these guys have purposed, they're going to do away with Jesus somehow. They are resolved to do that. If you were a disciple, you would be saying to yourself, things don't bode well. There's a lot to worry about. And when Jesus is talking about his death, the text tells us, The disciples had no clue what he meant by that, but they were afraid to ask. No clarification, it's just hanging around. Now Jesus is talking about this delay, and they're thinking, what is that? These guys had lots to worry about. But you'll notice in in the verses that immediately precede our text, Jesus says something that's even worse. He has been saying to the disciples, look guys, your father loves you he cares for you. He takes care of the sparrows. He he makes the flowers, the lilies of the field look beautiful. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and and, and what you're going to wear. God will take care of you. But these guys who have given up everything to follow Jesus now hear him say this immediately before our text. Verse 33, Oh, let's go back to 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out, and unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. (laughs) Do you see what Jesus is saying to these guys? You think you've given up everything. You know what I'm telling you? Give more. I mean, what did they have left? It's sorted down to the widow's might. And he's saying, if you really trust in what I've said about God, if you really have a hope of heaven, then you're going to want to make investments for heaven. And you do that, he says, by caring for the poor. Very interesting words indeed. Now we come to our text. Jesus says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so blessed are these slaves But be sure of this If the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming He would not have allowed his house to be broken into You too be ready For the son of man is coming at the hour that you do not expect So our hope is in heaven the disciples get that, but there's going to be some kind of a delay. What are we to do in that interim? What Jesus says is, you won't know when the time comes. You, won't, you don't know. I'm not telling you when I'm coming. And in fact, he says, when the time comes, you'll say, I never expected it now. So here he is saying, here's what you got to do to be ready. Oh, just one little illustration from your family life. Have you ever gone husband and wife to the store or gone somewhere on an event and the kids were left at home? Uh, If you said to the kids, we're back at 8, 7.30, chaos, you know, turns into cosmos, and now there's this transformation of the house they knew what time you were coming. It's a whole different ball game when you say to your kids, I'm not telling you what time I'm coming home. See, now you have gotta be ready all the time rather than just at a certain time. Look at the two examples that Jesus gives that are sort of like a parable. Notice the word like there in verse 36. Like those who are waiting for their master. And notice he's coming back from a wedding banquet you got to watch. Food is all over the place in this text, and frankly, in the Gospels. So here's this master who is at a wedding feast, and, and these servants who are commended here, who are going to be blessed, are those who are waiting eagerly for their master to return so that they can quickly answer the door. In other words, they're they're not sleeping and say, just a minute, I'm gonna get my nightgown, all this kind of stuff. No, they're ready, they're waiting. And their lamps are burning. Oh, I should say a word about that. This is about loins and lamps. And sadly, the text doesn't say it. It says lamps. It says be ready, but it really says gird your loins. Why is that important? Well, because we've heard it before in Exodus chapter 12, God says to the Israelites, we're getting ready to move and to come out of this place. Gird up your loins. Get ready. But you see, if you didn't say gird your loins, by the way, the King James does, gird up your loins, if it didn't say that, you wouldn't think of Exodus 12 or 1 Peter 1.13. Gird up the loins of your mind. So this, this wording was intended to, to give pictures from other places to say it really is important to be ready. OK, so here are these slaves who are eager for their master to come home. I assume they love this master, and they're waiting for him, and, and frankly, they probably want to know how the wedding went. But the surprising thing is, not only does he find the ready, but it says he will gird himself, he will gird himself and He will have them sit down at the table, and he will serve them. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute, but very important. So here you have the plus side. Here's the positive example of being ready. Slaves ready for their master to come back so they can open the door. Then there's this but in verse 39. But be sure of this. If the head of the house had not known what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have allowed the house to be broken into. It was. It was broken into. That's the point. They didn't know. They weren't ready. They got robbed. So readiness, not readiness. And he says then, by way of application, you too, be ready. Be ready for when I'm going to come. And especially because you don't know when it is. Here's this question of Peter in verse 41. Peter says... Lord, you're addressing this parable to... Are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Trust Peter to always blurt out what everybody else is thinking. But why, why this question? Well, you need to understand, number one, that in 1129 and in 121, we're, we have a very interesting description of this crowd. It says that the crowd is so dense... people are trampling on each other. And and in the midst of this situation, Jesus speaks to his disciples. It says first. I'm not sure what that means first in terms of time or whether it's meaning first and foremost in the sense of this is really important. Maybe it's both. But Jesus is speaking at times to his disciples. So in this whole crowd thing, somebody will say, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. So Jesus will answer that guy as he does, right? Uh, or some woman will cry out, you know, blessed is the mother who, who had you. And, and Jesus will have something to say about that. And then there, there are these things that he says to his disciples that, that sort of everybody else, I could see him, like one of the guys that used to be in our church who was deaf. he Say to his wife, not too quietly in the middle of the service. what he say? And, and, and they're trying to hear what's going on that Jesus is saying to his disciples. They're kind of interested in hearing it too. Why does he ask that question? Well, one, because here they are in the midst of a crowd. Who are you talking to? And number two, because it's a parable, if you go back earlier in the Gospels, you remember it says Jesus taught them only in parables. And he taught the disciples privately what they meant. So I think what Peter's saying is, Jesus, I don't have a clue what you're saying. Are you going to tell us in private what this means? And Jesus doesn't really answer the question. I think this is why. Because I think he's speaking to everybody. When Jesus spoke in parables, he said, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Now, frankly, amongst the 12, there was one traitor, wouldn't, wouldn't apply to him. And in that crowd, there would be those who had ears to hear, and they would be listening. So I think it's to both. Now he goes on to example number two, and now he's talking not just about readiness, but what readiness looks like. What do you do when you're ready and waiting and eager for the coming of the kingdom? Verse 42, and the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom the master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. What is it that the servant is going to be doing in eternity? Feeding people, isn't that what it says? you are going to be there to give out people their rations at the proper time. That's the future job. So what Jesus is saying is, you ought to be doing now what you're going to be doing then. Do in the present. Occupy yourself now doing that which will go on. In other words, it's sort of rehearsal. This is what you should be doing. And Jesus has already said if your riches are in heaven, if your treasure's in heaven, then that's the kind of thing you're going to be doing. However, notice now verse 45, the but. That was the positive example. Negative example comes in verse 45. But that's, if that servant says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. Notice that. Not expecting. And he will uh, cut him into pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. I (laughs) I think it's safe to say that guy's not going to heaven, right? So here you have the plus. One is doing the very things which one will do more of in heaven, or the one who somehow misinterpreted the time. And By the way, you can see that in Second Peter chapter 3, remember? There are men who say, well, where's the promise if he's coming? Everything's going on just like it did. God doesn't God care. God's not coming. We can live any way we want. Well, this guy did. And rather than using the resources and the assets that God had given him as a steward to distribute and to use, he's misappropriated those assets to himself. And so rather than feeding other people, he's feeding himself. And rather than giving drink to others, he's drinking himself way too much, and he's getting drunk. Self-indulgence is what comes from someone Who thinks they have all kinds of time before Jesus comes. Verses 47 and 48, in my mind, set out the principle on which God makes a judgment of how to deal with these kind of people. How do you deal with those who are disobedient? How do you deal with those who have no hope for heaven? He says, and that slave who knew his master's will— and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few for everyone who has been given much will be much will be required to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more god judges people on the basis of what they do with what they know. That takes me back to Romans chapter one. The question's always raised, what about the heathen in Africa? God judges them on the basis of what they do with what they know. Do they know everything about the gospel? No. So I take it, few stripes, so to speak. God judges people on the basis of what they do with what they have. Those to whom much is given, much is required. Now, frankly, I find that a very comforting principle. Do you not? It, I, this is probably telling something about my carnality. I feel good because I think of Adolf Hitler. He's getting a bunch of stripes. These guys who knew a lot, who had a lot, and who abused it, they get more. Isn't it? Isn't that, in a sense, isn't hell a comfort to us as believers? Because they're going to get what they deserve. That's the whole point. And this is the principle on which that judgment is meted out. I think, for me, that is really, really encouraging. Now, I'm going to take you to a place... You've probably never been, and truthfully, I haven't ever been either. So listen carefully, but I don't have any other explanation for the verses that come after this. I used to say when I was preaching regularly, I'm, I'm climbing out on that limb quite a ways, and somebody will probably be here with a saw to help me out. That's possible, but I don't know what else to do with this. Listen to verse 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. What in the world does that mean? Well, if you go other, to other texts, and I, I'm going to try to conserve the time, but trust me, there are other texts. First of all, let's talk about fire. Who said anything about Jesus and fire earlier on? John the Baptist, right? I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And then he goes on to describe that fire is eternal judgment. Wow. That sounds like uh, something yet to come, doesn't it? Now, what does baptism refer to? Jesus is talking about baptism and fire. Well, if you look elsewhere, where his disciples are asking Jesus, you know they wanna get up close to the throne with him, and he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Well, they were in the sense that they would die for their faith. They would be martyrs. So in that sense, they did participate. It's clear in my mind that when Jesus talks about that baptism, he's talking about his act of identifying with guilty sinners, whereby he takes their punishment on the cross. So I understand baptism to refer to the cross. I understand fire to refer to the judgment that is yet to come on unbelievers— When Jesus Christ comes to reign over this world Think of this text Psalm 110 verse 1 Sit thou at my right hand Until Big word Until I subdue your enemies at your feet This is where I, I don't know if anybody else has ever done this I hadn't seen it But it seems to me that what we see is Jesus is saying, "I'm in the same spot you are. I have to wait too." His waiting is the waiting that comes A for the cross, which he has moved purposefully toward in chapter nine, verse 51. He's resolutely set himself out for the cross, but he's not there yet. So Jesus is saying, I want to get there to accomplish what the Father has for me to do. But having done that, see, now we're talking second coming. Having done that, there is another coming where I will return, and in that return, I will subdue the enemies of God. And and I will bring about the punishment that is deserved and, and when you think about this world and its fallenness and corruption, don't you think that God wants it fixed? So you can understand why Jesus is saying, you know, I, I, I'm really committed to move to the cross, but I'm also committed to do this. Now, here's the, here's the twist. Jesus has to wait in a way like we have to wait Here's the parallel I didn't see until very recently. He doesn't know when the second time is. He says that, doesn't he? You remember that? The disciples say to Jesus, well, tell us. Tell us when this is going to be. And he says, no, Matt, the angels don't know it. No man knows it. The Son of Man does not know it. Do I know how to explain that theologically? No, I call that a mystery. And I just put it off in a little buffer, and I say... Someday I'm going to understand that. But it's like the humanity and deity of Christ. Who would have ever figured that one out? Or or Jesus being the suffering servant and and then triumphing over his enemies. Some things you just have to say. I, I don't know why it is or how it is that he can say that. Jesus doesn't know the timing of his return. That's what he says. Just like the disciples don't know the timing of his return. So I think what the text is saying is Jesus is like us. He has to wait. But what you see is there is a readiness. You see that with Jesus? What he's saying is I can't wait for this to happen, and I am resolved to bring it about. That's the way we ought to be about his second coming. That's my understanding. If you've got a better understanding of that text than I do, Bring it on. I, I'm, I'm open. All right, so now, look at what he says in 51 and 50, uh, through 53. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three, mother against daughter, so on. I think what Jesus is saying is, and remember this goes back to the Old Testament where people were saying, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. <laughs> and, and, and God was saying through the prophets, hey, this is not happy days are here again. You remember when the elections happen and, and somebody gets elected and they're happy days are here again? Yeah, 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 you know. This, they're not singing that when the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord comes for judgment, among other things. And he's saying, these are tough times that are coming. And I know that. So finally, verse 58, 59. For while you are going with your appointment, oh, maybe back up one step. So to the crowds, he says this, verse 54. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. So it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be a hot day. And It turns out that way. You hypocrites. He's talking to the crowd. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but you don't, why don't you analyze the present time? He's saying you've been able to connect dots. You've seen, you know, what is it? Uh, Red in the morning, sailors take warning. Is that right? Red at night, Sailor's Delight, something like that. Anyway, people have ways of figuring out what the weather is. And he's saying, you're able to connect the dots, to see the signs, and to see where that's leading. And and you, you kind of pride yourself in being able to see the future. How come you can't see the signs that I'm giving and where that leads? And the interesting thing is, he doesn't just lay this off on the Jewish religious leaderships. He says, why can't you figure this out for yourselves? Why can't you see the evidence and see where all this is going? And, And now the question isn't so much when he's coming as it is if he's coming. How can you not see that the time of my coming is imminent? And then he says, Here's what you need to do about that, 58, 59. For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. What's he What's he saying? You got to settle before you get the cord. <laughs> it, 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 that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five as well. You don't want to wait till you get the cord. It only gets worse. You want to settle early. And he's saying, if you saw the future as it's going to come, if you saw the judgment was going to come, you'd make things right now. Remember in scripture it says, today is the day of salvation. See, there's two areas of teaching in this text one is to believers and it's to urge them to be ready and eager and waiting and working in light of the coming of the kingdom the second one is saying with that there's the coming of judgment and the urging here is you really need to settle up because frankly when he comes there's no second chance or when you die there's no second chance All right, I want to drill down on a couple things. One, applicationally. Our checkbook probably tells us more about our eschatology. That's a fancy $5 word for prophecy. Our checkbook probably tells us more about our eschatology than anything else. You want to know how invested we are in the kingdom? Look Look at my checkbook. Where's our money going? And that's what Jesus is talking about here, isn't it? Checkbook tells our priorities. Notice, too, the connection between what we are doing now and what we will do for eternity. It's interesting, and you see that with the parable of of the servants and the talents. Enter into the joy of your master. What you see is God saying, when you are doing well as stewards of what I have given you here, you get more responsibility, but it's really more responsibility of the same kind. So if we want to know what we're to do now, then we ought to be asking, what are we gonna do then? And we should also ask, what is the delight of our Lord? Because that's what he does, and therefore it ought to be what we delight in and do as well. Try this on for size. Our Lord's delay is by design. We are not told on purpose. And the reason is he wants us to be ready at all times. If we knew the specific time, we'd be like our kids. We'd loaf, we'd do all kinds of things, and then we'd cram for finals at the end. We have to be ready because we don't know. And what we do during the delay tells a lot about who we are right? Wicked slave, good slave. That's what tells us who we are. The time of our Lord, here's one that, again, yeah, I'm going to crawl out a bit on the limb, but the timing of our Lord's return is not revealed. Would you agree with me on that? We don't know. We don't know. Hey, by the way, anybody who says they know, they better Read. Um, we don't know, and ramp it up one level. When the Lord comes, we're going to say, I never would have thought it was now. We not only don't know, but what we think it's going to be is wrong. Now, what does that tell you about our whole approach to prophecy? Well, if you go down to the seminary to the, by the way, that you know, the big thing is eschatology. Where do we start? Pre-mill, pre-trib, mid-trib, all-mill. You know, you got 15 varieties of eschatological stuff. You know what our Lord's word says to me is, nobody gets it right. Nobody gets it completely right. And anybody who, who says, I've worked really hard at that and these guys are wrong and I'm right, they're going to be the ones who say, well, what do you know? I never would have thought that. And, and so what it says to me is maybe that ought to um, modify a little bit our approach to prophecy. Maybe we would be better off as evangelicals rather than writing books to defend our position and telling people why the other guys are all wrong. Maybe what we ought to do is focus on what Jesus says we do know. And we should know, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that have been revealed are the things that you ought to focus on. We ought to do that. We ought to do that. We ought to be careful. I'm not saying don't think about it. I'm saying we ought to be thinking all the time about the Lord's return. But let's think pretty carefully and cautiously Because we don't know when, and we really don't know how. That's what Jesus said. Here's the big one. Jesus is the host at the table. When you read that text, does that not catch you off guard? Verse 27, those servants who are faithful, who have done well. When the master comes and they open the door for him, and he's pleased with what they've done, it says... He will gird himself. Isn't that interesting to pick up on, gird up, the loins of your, mom, gird up your loins, be ready? It says, Jesus is going to gird himself. And he's going to gird himself to serve, and he is going to serve dinner to his servants. Now, I'd encourage you, because we don't have time to go there, but think about the importance of hospitality in the Bible, all of it. Do you remember when Abraham's servant goes to look for a wife? What's the qualification? Hospitality. He says, Lord, I want the woman when I say, could I have a drink of water? Who says, hey, I'll water your camels too. Do you think that's a small job? Hospitality. Abraham is a man who, remember, entertains the three uh, before Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, who entertains the angels before the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Psalm 23, he prepares a table for us in the midst of our, of our enemies. Uh, all through the scriptures, you see this. By the way, both 1 Timothy and Titus say that one of the qualifications for an elder is hospitality. Hebrews says that we ought to be faithful in, in doing what God has given us to do because. Many, by entertaining, have entertained angels unawares. Hospitality is huge. Here's where I'm going with that. That helps me understand. This text helps me better understand how wrong things were at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. They were having, by the way, I've got to tell you this. Communion is a meal. I, I have no doubt in my mind. Communion was, and ideally, Should be a meal, not a little teeny piece of cracker and a little sip of juice, Uh, and we do the same thing. I'm not. I'm not laying up. I'm just saying, it doesn't picture what communion was meant to do. Jesus at the Passover says to his disciples, "With great desire, I desire to be with you." Jesus was the host. And he delighted to be there with them. And he says, this won't happen again until we do it in the kingdom. The kingdom is described as a banquet. And every time we partake of communion, we ought to say to ourselves, this is a dress rehearsal. Jesus put on this feast for me. Jesus provided this for me. And this is just a reminder of the big one that's coming. I think that's true of the text. Dress rehearsal. What we do now is simply a rehearsal for heaven. Father, we thank you for this text. What, what beautiful words, how amazing your truth is. We pray that you would give us a real hope for heaven and that we would live that way in Jesus' name.